Elizabeth. Hello. Good morning, Dr. Elizabeth Vanderweel. Please tell me I got that right. You did very well. <laughs> Yay, me. <laughs> consultant or hand in the dark consultant in Seattle, WA, and the author of the book Apocalyptic Best Practices, which I can't wait to hear about because I don't think it's about zombies, <laughs> but it's a unique approach to fear and change. Dr. Elizabeth, first of all, I have to ask why the name Hand in the Dark? Oh, so thank you for asking that. You, you are the first person to ask. Um, so Hand in the Dark for me signifies, and I think for a lot of people, is when you are lost, when you do not, when you cannot see where you're going, which is happening more and more in pandemic times, you don't have plans. All you thought you knew where you were going, um, you can't tell anymore. And to just have somebody there with you, not necessarily telling you what to do or where to go, but being with you while you figure it out. That's the hand in the dark. I always believe in reaching a hand. Um, what is it? Uh, reaching a hand so you can lift somebody up. So a hand up, not a hand out. So that is mm -hmm. really beautiful. This yeah. is like a hand with. A hand with. That's even better. So you can walk through the dark together. You are a fear expert, which I absolutely love. And it makes me think immediately that you know what to do about monsters under the bed. <laughs> but how does this relate to your specialization in program evaluation, learning design, and leadership coaching. What is program evaluation? Uh, program evaluation is when an organization has usually an internal program or sometimes a program where they're serving clients. Um, it can be something that they got a grant to make sure that there is a tree in every easement. And so how do we make sure that we are doing that? Um, or a program for our staff uh, for make sure that we're being more inclusive in our meetings. How do we tell if we're actually achieving that? So too many times people put programs into place and they think because they have the intention thing that that is enough to do it, that the operations they put in place and the staff they put in place to achieve it is, is going to do it. Because we absolutely must measure. Uh, of course, we need to evaluate. The impact of the program, then it's really difficult to tell. And how closely we stuck to our original brief. Thank you. How does fear tie into that? Um, well, it's scary. People don't necessarily want to know whether their program is working because if they find out that it's not, um, their funding could go away. Um, if their ego attached to this, it could, you know, feel like a personal attack if their program's not working. Um, also, with any kind of learning, adults engaging with real learning. Um, learning something that you don't already know or or aren't like leveling up something you already know is scary. It, it can be a real ego challenge. Um, you can look foolish, which, you know, and you're going to make mistakes and, and have fails because you haven't done this before. 
And similar with leadership coaching, people are often put in positions of leadership um, without ever learning how to do that. And so it's particularly if you've been doing it for a minute to find out that, hey, maybe you're not doing it so well. It's scary. It's because it is really all of these things are really important. And um, if you're not, if you're bringing your full self to it and it's not hitting the mark, um, there can be consequences. And so part of the fear is telling you that this is really important and you need to pay attention. Fear of judgment. That's the thing that came to mind too. Being judged for not living up to to what was expected, which mm -hmm. often accompanied by shame. And these, right. these are uh, emotions we want to avoid. Growth and learning has always been one of my values. But, but yes, some learning is scary. Uh, I was... Mm -hmm. I was terrified to learn to drive. I know this is off topic, but I was terrified to learn to drive in the USA. You drive on the wrong side of the road. Your motorways are huge. Uh, mm -hmm. Your cars are about three times the size of, of the cars that I'm used to. And, and it, it was scary. But once you move through the fear, the confidence that comes from it, and it's only by awareness and assessment that you know where you are and how to move on. So thank you for explaining that. Would you tell me a little bit, more about what learning design is? Uh, learning design is kind of a very broad term for designing any sort of tool, technique, process, program, course to help people learn something. Um, learning doesn't always have to be a workshop or a class. It can be a one sheet of reminders that you take with you as you're learning a new process. It can be um, a YouTube video that you like. I I am currently learning how to crochet tiny little uh, amiguri animals, and <laughs> between um, try, trial and failure, and uh, written instructions and YouTube videos, I'm starting to get it. <laughs> so all of this is learning design. It's just it's figuring out what needs to be learned and designing a way that most people will be able to take that in. That is learning indeed. What kind of animals? Uh, so far, I've done octopuses, and um, I've just completed a platypus. <laughs> oh, how adorable. Isn't the word platypus just so incredibly cool? And I've, yes. And I've heard <laughs> octopuses are very good at learning, and I'm, I, which, however they design their learning underwater, they are also quick to pick up things. And now the, the flow, you're talking about the flow, program evaluation, learning design, and leadership coaching, they tend to flow into each other. I'm imagining there can be some fear around leadership coaching. Leadership can be very scary in itself, and perhaps being evaluated can, can also bring up some insecurities. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, my uh, leadership degree is interdisciplinary, and it was one of the first leadership doctorates in the country. And a lot of people didn't know what that meant. Like, what are you going to do with a leadership degree? And my usual response was take over the world, of course. <laughs> and th it takes into um, consideration sociology, psychology, um, systems thinking, politics, all of these different disciplines that come into play 
when you're trying to get a group of people to do something. And that's basically really, really basically what leadership is, is that you're trying to get a group of people to do something that they want to do. I was just thinking of my experience with uh, uh, recruitment, my experiences with uh, managing volunteers, which are a whole different kettle of fish because it requires completely different motivation because you can't, you're not motivating with money. Uh, mm -hmm. You've done work with nonprofits as well. Mm -hmm. Would you tell me about your program, Learn to Learn? Um, that is a little workshop that I created based on a book called Make It Stick. And it is the science of successful learning. So most of us have been learning our entire lives. We, we started learning before we knew we were learning. And, but rarely are we taught effective techniques and tools to do it so that it lasts. Um, oftentimes we're just like repeating what works for somebody else, but it ne doesn't necessarily work for us. So in this uh, 90 minute workshop, we go through six tools and um, a handful of techniques to employ each one of them. Some of it's familiar, some of it's completely new. There's a term, one of the tools is, uh, uh, oh, it's just gone out of my head, but it's more generational, it's more creative. Um, a lot of creative-minded people, artistic people, really struggle in regular school. And so this is a tool and these are techniques that you can write a story to help you learn your chemistry homework things like that, that are scientifically show that they, that people retain what they're learning um, more uh, fully and for longer than just like cramming or reading something over and over again. It makes it relatable. I'm going to be, uh, create. I'm creating courses based on my friend Donna Sakar's book, Do the Thing, and it uses fiction writers' techniques based on the hero's journey, creating stories in order to help people look at themselves through a different lens and then achieve their goals. I love that you you involve stories. I mean, we've been telling stories since the dawn of time in order to help us learn and remember things. For those of us that are creative, I thank you. May I circle back to non what is different about being a leader for a nonprofit, and what are some things a leader needs to to know? So, particularly leaders in nonprofits need to um, really ingest the mission of the organization more than like for profits, which are legally required to increase money for shareholders. So the shareholders for a nonprofit are the same people that are receiving the, the goods or services of that nonprofit. So it's, it's kind of a, not exactly a feedback loop, but a different way of um, being accountable and responsible to uh, ideals and to people who are not traditionally in positions of power. And when you're leading an organization like that, 
yes, funding needs to happen. And we're in um, fall fundraising season again, um, that a lot of leaders' time goes into that relationship building so that those that have the funds can share them to further the mission. And so talking about the mission and what and the vision for what the world is going to look like when this mission is accomplished is a very different sort of skill set than a CEO who of a for-profit who can talk about bottom lines and lean production processes and things like that. Speaking of incredible nonprofits, uh, I'd love if you could share a little bit about Hopelink, which is a their mission is a community free of poverty. You can find Hopelink on hopelink.org. I believe you have worked with them. Would you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So Hopelink is an amazing organization that started with a group of people who had been laid off from Boeing. I think this was back in the 70s and came together as a community to support each other through the gap of unemployment. So really wraparound services that included making sure people had enough to eat, making sure that people had housing, making sure that the electric bills were paid for. And so that's what Hopelink continues to do for a lot of people. They serve um, most of King County, except for like urban Seattle area, and as well as into Snohomish and some in Pierce County as well. Um, they provide, they have food banks, they have housing, they have financial support, and they have transportation. If you're ever in um, rural King County, you'll see DART buses, D-A-R-T, um, that are augmenting um, on transit and metro transit bus service into rural areas. So people who have a hard time affording gas that is almost $5 a gallon now, um, they can use these services to still be able to get where they need to go. So Hopelink is an amazing organization and um, the, the vision of uh, a world free of poverty is a beautiful vision. And um, what they're trying to do now is trying to get ahead of people landing in such dire situations and trying to get a hold of some of the systemic uh, issues that are putting people in poverty to begin with. Like you, they really do offer a hand up and a hand with. Mm -hmm. Yes. Do you find there's a bit of a dichotomy? I, I, I don't want to segue too much because I want to get back to your book, but Bellevue, King County, there's so many, there's so much wealth here and yet mm -hmm. people in poverty. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is a interesting paradox that the very systems that allow people, certain people to have such enormous wealth that they can share it with organizations like Hopelink um, are the same systems that put clients in front of Hopelink. So it is an interesting um, loop there that if Hopelink is successful in interrupting systems that put people in poverty, they will also be interrupting systems that allow their funders to be able to fund them.
That is a loop indeed. Yeah, that that is a tough thing that um, I um, I do not envy the, the folks that are addressing that. It is it is going to be a long long journey. But I'm glad it is being addressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I forgot to tell people how to find you, which is handinthedark.net. So that, that's a pretty obvious to find Hand in the Dark Consulting. But Elizabeth has two pages. She also has an author page. One is under her name, Elizabeth Vanderweel, and I'm going to spell that. That's Elizabeth, which is really pretty, E-L-I-S-E-B-E-T-H, and then Vanderweel, V-A-N-D-E-R, and the wheel is W-E-I-L.com. And on that, you will find her apocalyptic best practices. And again, I immediately go to zombies, but would you please tell <laughs> what the book is actually about? Uh, so it, it might be helpful with zombies. It is, uh, <laughs> it is a unique approach to fear and change. So um, it's based on uh, my dissertation work on uh, fear and transformational learning. And it also has some roots in my master's thesis in American literature, which was apocalyptic fiction in the US. And the thing about apocalypse is, you know, popularly we're told that apocalypse is the end of existence. Like there's nothing afterwards when it's um, couldn't be further from the truth. Apocalypses are happening all the time and they are words of the great REM, the end of the world as we know it. So, we in 2020, the world ended. The world that we knew ended and it's not coming back. And we have to figure out a way to navigate this new world. And we're not going to go back to normal. That that normal is gone. And so we have to create a new one. And there's a lot of fear in this. There's massive change. And so if we can um, partner with fear, battle it or avoid it, uh, we can make more intentional um, choices about what we want this normal, the next normal, the next world to look like. Normal is a word that's always bugged me. In New Zealand, <laughs> a few schools that have normal in the, in the name, mm -hmm. I was a little, uh, things like uh, Takapuna Normal Intermediate. And it just means they use a particular kind of curriculum. And I know you do curriculum development. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I use the term normal in, in like statistical sense. Yes. Normal is the result of behavior over time. That's all it is. Thank you. That's, uh, there are many ways to define that. And as you say, we are in the new normal. But if I may use normal in another way, you recently were... On a book list, you, you were uh, uh, highlighted on a book list of authors with disabilities. Do you feel comfortable explaining what you mean about disabilities and why you consider you have one? Um, well, the, the government has defined my medical condition as a disability. Um, and it is one of the, and it's mostly invisible. Um, it does show up now and again. I have MS and... Um, sometimes, you know, my legs don't work. Uh, sometimes I'm exhausted for no good reason. Uh, and that can make me not able to do some things. And it comes and goes. It is very chaotic disease. 
And so it, my, my work with apocalypse and with fear has actually really helped me navigate living with this condition and understanding that, you know, I'm, I'm always learning something and this is another way that I can learn. I love the words neurodivergent. I've embraced that because I have bipolar and it terrifies me at times. I can, I, I would imagine having MS would be, would, would take me to a place of fear, but I get terrified of where my bipolar will lead me, which is often into some very, very deep depression. So mm-hmm. thank, yeah. you, thank you for sharing about that. Uh, one of the things I love about your website, because scattered amongst uh, this this beautiful, uh, beautifully worded, articulate, very grown up language, is things like you want people to be wonderful. That mm-hmm. was, what do you mean by that? Well, I I believe that people already are wonderful, and I think that too often in our culture uh, we're expected to be the exact opposite. Um, I, I think of wonderful as being full of wonder, as being someone who you, you can never know fully because you're always discovering another aspect, another layer, um, another perspective in this person that is just full of wonders. And our culture has all of these things where we're expected to do terrible things. We have all these laws, rules, policies that basically tell you if you do this bad thing, you this bad thing will happen to you. But we're never supported in you are being wonderful. You are doing the right thing. You are kind. You are um, yeah, uh, supportive, any of these things. And so now you get these wonderful things. That's not even hardly ever talked about. And I want to support people embracing that they are wonderful. And I want to open more opportunities for them to show up that way. And I see you use the hashtag kindness matters. It seems like kindness is a value of yours. Yes. I think um, being kind is much better than being nice because sometimes kindness is saying the tough stuff. Sometimes kindness is um, walking away. Um, And it's kindness that is kind toward yourself, kind of like the oxygen mask. You need kindness like you need oxygen. You cannot be kind to other people if you cannot be kind to yourself. And one of my favorite quotes is uh, Michelle McNamara talked that um, everything is chaos, be kind. I noticed in one of your posts, you advocate that when you do meet a stranger, be kind because you have no idea what struggles they're going through. Mm-hmm. And and everybody is. I mean, we, I was just having a conversation with someone a couple of days ago who was going through a lot of struggles, but constantly comparing herself to other people that have different struggles. Um, and she saw hers as less than oh, other yes. people's struggles. Yes. And what I emphasized to her, a beautiful lesson shared to me by a woman named Holly Caudell, who is a quadriplegic. And I was having a tough day. And 
She's like, what's wrong? Let's talk about it. I'm like, I cannot burden you with my silly problems. Look at all you have to deal with on a daily basis. And she looked at my soul and she said, if it's important to you, it's important. And I share that and remind myself of that every single day because comparison just makes misery. And if it's important to you, whether I feel it's important, has nothing to do with it. If it's important to you, it's important. A wonderful French friend of mine in Tokyo, when I was going through that, you know, oh no, other people have it worse. Oh no, my, my you know, what, what I'm feeling isn't relevant. I was minimizing and diminishing. And she said, you know what, pain is not a competition. Mm-hmm. Your emotional pain is just as valid as somebody else. And self-kindness, you know, detaching with love, kindness mm-hmm. through tough love, kindness to yourself through acceptance and forgiveness. I think forgiveness is a big element of being kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Completely different subject. You are, you have been, or you, you are still an ion collaborator. Isn't an ion like a subatomic particle? How, how <laughs> is an ion collaborator? And that's I-O-N, not, what, not the metal thing that I avoid um, anywhere near my clothes. <laughs> um, but, but how do you collaborate with ions? Because that was for the Washington technology industry association would you tell me a bit about that yeah sure so the um the program itself has um transformed uh the woman who headed it up dr julie fam has spun off with her own company called curiosity based and the ion collaborators program was her dream child to activate the talents present in a community to serve community needs or interests. So she is very much about bridging um, across sectors. So she would bring people together from nonprofits, government, and particularly the tech sector, um, and brought these talent sets and perspectives together to address um, a neighborhood like South Park and what talking with the people who live there and work there what does this neighborhood want what what would be supportive and then this group would get together and create um some sort of product that could be handed off to the community and that they could then run themselves so for um that sometimes this resulted in a mural that depicted uh, an aspect of the neighborhood or the community that was really important and that people like to be reminded of on a regular basis. Uh, my group, our neighborhood, uh, games were very important to them. And through our um, conversations, we discovered this game that was created by a couple of Native American creators called Potlatch that teaches people about a different kind of economics that really um, breaks capitalistic brains and the, the bringing together of potlatch economics and playing games was something that we handed off to the Department of Neighborhoods for this area and they ran with it. Wow. <laughs> Forgive me for picking up something that is minuscule amongst what you were talking about, 
But the minute you said South Park, I associated with your love of illustrations. Your book has illustrations, which are cartoons by Margaret Mepps Schult. But when I hear the word South Park, of course, I think of the cartoon. But where, where is South Park? Why is it, is, it in, is it in Seattle? And why South yeah. Park? Uh, South Park is an area of Seattle. It is um, south of um, basically the light industrial area, just south of downtown. Um, it is bordered by ri the Duwamish River and one other river. So it, there's a lot of bridges that get there, that you get need to get there. Um, and it has been traditionally an underserved neighborhood and it is starting to really grow and become more, um, I don't, I don't want to say gentrified because I think they're doing a really good job of retaining their heterogenerative flavor and culture, but they're definitely becoming a little more affluent and there's a little more diverse offerings there now and um and it and it's pretty it's a pretty cool area i highly recommend checking it out well i look forward to exploring more of seattle once my moon boots off i i didn't understand the word heterogenitive <laughs> so um hetero is just like many or diverse different kinds and so like different kinds of viewpoints different kinds of cultures um, different kinds of businesses. So uh, often what happens when an area is gentrified is a lot of chain businesses come in and um, the, the architecture and the infrastructure starts becoming very um, bland. Like it, you cannot tell this neighborhood from any other neighborhood in the U.S., uh, so when a neighborhood can become more affluent while resisting becoming kind of homogene homogeneity, becoming all the same as any other neighborhood you would find anywhere. Um, I think that is a really fabulous thing to participate in and to enjoy when you go visit. Agreed. Uh, bland is not a word that should be in anybody's life, really. <laughs> Speaking of diverse, would you tell me about what you did at South Seattle College? You, you diverse apprenticeship programs. What do you mean by that? And you, you put in you put in air quotes the original four year degree, which fascinated me. Yeah, so apprenticeships are very underappreciated in this country. It's it's uh, a little maddening, actually. So apprenticeships, uh, traditionally in trades, um, are you know like carpentry, cement masons, electricity, um, all those sorts of things. They uh, go through a process of learning with a mentor, and within a group of either like. The, a group that is formed by other people in the same trade. Sometimes this is a union. Sometimes it's, you know, basically a club. Um, and they work while they are learning. So in the model that we use at South Seattle College, there is classroom education that is coupled with on-the-job training so that apprentices are actually paid to learn, which is different than like a straight up 
academic degree where you pay to learn, apprentices are paid to learn. And oftentimes, you know, apprenticeships, the average is four years. It can be as little as two, it can be as much as six. And um, we, on the South Seattle campus, the Georgetown campus of South Seattle College is the largest apprenticeship hub in the state of Washington. And we collaborated with the college in creating bit bridge degrees so that um, apprentices could gain an applied science bachelor's that would qualify them for managerial and supervisor positions more effectively. And also, you know, integrate some uh, liberal arts classes that would complement their craft. Um, it did this for meat cutters, which is one of the shorter apprenticeships and augmented that with classes in like culinary and mathematics, which are all useful in the um, meat cutting trade. So we had that and then, you know, electricians, glaziers who are people that install windows and glass all over the place in Seattle. Um, so yeah, we helped all of that take place and make sure that it is quality education that these apprenticeships are getting, these apprentices are getting, and not just like moving them through ticking boxes so they can get warm bodies on the job site. It really is leadership development and evaluation. I, I, and learning design all wrapped up in that internship. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth, yeah. the measurement maven, by the way. <laughs> you can tell uh, superb at explaining and educating and teaching. Because I always have a clothing question in here, my clients, when I'm working with them on their visions, which often translate to taking that vision to their closets, there can be some fear, some fear around being visible, some fear around trying new patterns or new colors of being seen, some fear around actualizing their vision because of even some fear of success or fear that they're not worthy or fear that their vision is that they don't have the abilities for their vision, none of which is true, of course. Do you have any fear when it comes to your clothing? Hmm. I think my fear, I have a very particular style and aesthetic to my clothing. And I also almost exclusively shop thrift and secondhand. So my fear is that the clothes that I want to wear will not be available. I won't be able to find them because other people don't share my aesthetic um, and my values. Part of why I shop thrift, other than it is very economical, is also my value of um, you know taking care of the planet, not constantly creating disposable things. Um, so my, my fear around that is looking less than my, what I feel is optimum in in a given situation um yeah that's that's most of how that shows up thank you for sharing that with i, I have clients who they value the environment they they feel very much the same about you so they'll look for upcycled or recycled clothing and with a thrift 
store of any, which, and there are some amazing ones. Goodwill in Seattle is uh, in, in, on the east side, is one of the largest in the country, and Jubilee Thrift on 8th Street uh, supports incredible programs. But of course, it's not curated, it's based on whoever mm -hmm. does So you, it, it is a bit of a treasure hunt. So I completely understand that, especially since. Uh, clothing is not designed for all body shapes. It just it just isn't. It's the fault of the designer. But I also have uh, clients who have supported designers because their value is aesthetics and wearable art. But I love mm -hmm. bring back clothing to values. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you yeah. for asking. Yeah, I mean, my my goal at this point is to uh, make really good friends with a talented tailor. Yes, to <laughs> a tailor, there is no such thing as a wrong body, only wrong clothing. Yep. Yes, I agree one hundred percent. Yes, I, I know a tailor on the east side. I will. I, I don't know if that's convenient for you, but to find an atelier is is finding gold. Mm -hmm. Yes. Hate for polymaths. What is a polymath, and why are why are polymaths so awesome? <laughs> polymaths um, are. Uh, another term for renaissance person. So a person that is interested and accomplished in lots of different areas. So the one of the primary examples of this is Leonardo da Vinci, who uh, was an engineer, a painter, um, a writer, uh, did all these different, different sculptor. He did sculpture, um, all these different things um, really well. And in our current society, we're like, particularly as corporations are wanting to plug people into their process, they're like, you have to be really good at doing this one thing. You have to be really good at coding JavaScript. And that's all you need to do. Um, and and that that is just so, um, I don't know. It, I think it, we lose a lot. Uh, for one thing, we lose a lot of wonder. We lose a lot of wonderful when we limit ourselves to only one interest area. Um, and I think even that one interest area suffers. Like we cannot be as accomplished if we don't take into consideration other things that could influence it. So if you're a surgeon, if you don't consider ethics, politics, economics, as well as the anatomy of the person before you, um, your, your efficacy, your overall grandeur as a surgeon, I think is going to suffer. So I, you know, with my interdisciplinary doctorate and my, uh, background and fascination with literature and stories there's I am just insatiably curious and I want to know about lots of things and all of them come together to be a more robust and rounded out um, offering to the to my clients to my friends to my family Yay for polymaths. I'm a polymath. I believe Yay. all women have the potential to be polymaths, which is when I work with women on their vision, it's holistic. Let's look at every area of your life. Let's make sure that every element of who you are is satisfied. 
and, and yay for curiosity. I'm going to try trapeze lessons next year as one of my, I'm always looking for new things to try. Yay for polymaths. <laughs> one question, and this is on a, on a uh, very powerful, two, two very powerful subjects. You talk about fear and respect at work. Would you explain a little bit about that? Um, yeah, so my friend, uh, Dr. Julie Pham, who started Curiosity Based, she also is has created a tool called the Seven Forms of Respect. And her book is coming out probably by the end of the year. We're, we're doing edits and getting towards a final draft now. So look for Seven Forms of Respect coming up. But when... Uh, in workplaces as well as in social situations, things can get so very bad so very fast when someone feels disrespected. And we throw that word around, respect and disrespect, without really considering what that looks like or what that means in any given situation. And so when you are feeling disrespected, you are afraid that you're not being seen and heard as a full person. And on the other side of it, when you are expressing yourself in such a way that someone feels disrespected, this can hurt yourself, your self-view, because you see yourself as a very respectful person, as a good person, and you do not want to hurt someone else or disrespect someone else. So oftentimes if someone says, you know, I feel disrespected by you, um, an, an individual will automatically get defensive and things just escalate in a bad way. So by looking at when fear pops up in these situations where you've found yourself stepping on somebody's toes or somebody's uh, behavior or language has landed in a hurtful way, Notice the fear that pops up and what that's telling you and how important it is for you to address this situation right here, right now. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it, it, fear does not show up. So this situation is not that important that you can just let it go. Other times you get really scared. And I don't know about you, but sometimes in these situations, my fear turns into anger really quickly. So taking a look at this and when something gets that intense, that fast, it's really important. And you need to take a look at it and address it. And how you do this and, and what you do is completely up to you in the situation. But through Dr. Pham's research, we know that the kind of respect that we want changes from situation to situation, from, from who we're getting it from, you know, depending on whether we're receiving it from a boss or from a colleague, the respect shows up in different ways. And what we are willing to give as respect changes. And, it, and it's so fascinating what she has discovered. She used those of us in the ION collaborators and all of our interviews and conversations with community members as the basis for this research. And that has eventually evolved into the seven forms of respect to you know, really make a robust model that I think is going to be a real game changer for a workplace, if not, you know, all kinds of human interactions. 
Thank you for explaining that. Uh, that was fascinating. So seven forms of respect. Would you give us the author's name again? Julie Pham, P-H-A-M. Thank you. And curiositybased.com. Yes. So you will also find out more about curious people, connected teams, and collaborative cultures. Elizabeth, this was fantastic. You know, I was thinking, I don't remember where I met you, but I'm so glad we reconnected. <laughs> I know we've had a virtual relationship, but I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. You can find Elizabeth Herr, uh, Dr. Elizabeth, you can find her on her author's website, which is elizabethvanderwill.com, or Hand in the Dark Consulting, handinthedark.net. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. It was a privilege. Thank you, Erin. I really enjoyed this conversation, and we met through Maureen. Thank you. <laughs> Maureen, Maureen Jan, an incredible yes. marketing maven. Yes. Uh, one of her coffee hours. Thank you. Maureen, <laughs> thank you for this introduction. Have a lovely rest of your day. Bye. You too. Take care. Bye.